Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. As you walk through the white gypsum sands of White Sands National Park in southern New Mexico, your footprints will likely be quickly erased by the shifting winds. So it's somewhat of a phenomenon of nature that the oldest footprints ever discovered in North America are not only found here in perfect form, having withstood time and weather, but show that ancient humans lived here much earlier than previously believed. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. A research team from the U.S. Geological Survey earlier this month strengthened their findings released back in 2021 that dated these footprints to as much as 23,000 years ago. That finding erased previous theories that humans first arrived in North America some 11,000 years ago, after the end of the last ice age. This week, the traveler's Lynn Riddick talks with key researchers from the U.S. Geological Survey team about their initial analysis of the footprints, as well as their follow-up study that confirmed the age dating, and what it all means to our long-sought understanding of human colonization on this continent. Lynn will be back in a minute with that conversation. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Newly released data on ancient footprints found in White Sands National Park confirm that humans existed in North America much earlier than previously thought. This report is shining some new light on how and when these early humans migrated onto the continent and what their relationship might have been with ancient megafauna. And these findings present a challenge to the long-held conventional wisdom that humans didn't come to North America till after the last ice age, some 11,000 years ago. Research geologists from the U.S. Geological Survey, Jeff Picotti and Kathleen Springer, are here to tell us all about it. Welcome to The Traveler. Hi, Lynn, how are you doing? Thanks for having us. Oh, I'm good, thanks for being here. I'm guessing this is a very exciting time for you. It is, it is very fun and um, exciting to talk to people like you and to share our research. Well, great. Well, I want to talk extensively about your research, um, your findings both in 2021 and 2023, and what was known about the presence of ancient humans in North America before that. But first, tell us a little bit about the geology of White Sands National Park 
and the gypsum basin and why it's been so favorable to the preservation of footprints and fossils of all types. Okay. Uh, what's the area like now? And um, what do you think it may have looked like at the time the footprints were made? Right. So White Sands National Park is located in what is called the Tularosa Basin. And it's a really big structural basin bounded by these beautiful mountains um, ringing this basin. And back in the day, back in the Ice Age, there was a big Ice Age lake called Paleo Lake Otero that occupied this basin. And this basin and this lake are very similar to many other pluvial or Ice Age lakes throughout all of the Southwestern United States. So so there were lots of lakes during this period of time. So this was an Ice Age lake. The um, people and the megafauna obviously weren't walking around in the lake. The footprints wouldn't have been preserved that way. They weren't, you know, they, they were actually walking on the edge of this, you know, big basin. So if you fast forward to today, that whole Tellerosa Basin um, has been, has, you know, the, the ice ages ended, you know, the climate warmed, the lake disappeared, but that basin has been scoured by these winds. And that is what has created White Sands, this gypsum field. It's the world's largest gypsum field in the whole world. So those, those gypsum sands are actually from this Paleo Lake Otero which is kind of cool. It's like, you know, the rock cycle in action. So um, the basin though is now called Alkali Flat. And on the edges of this basin are still exposed these very flat lying sediments of this lake and lake edge. And that is basically the setting where we find all of these tracks and where we did the studies from 2021 and in 2023. So, um, you know, the prints are in the surface all over White Sands National Park. There's thousands and thousands of human footprints and megafaunal tracks and trackways all over this basin, frankly. But this study is literally one dot <laughs> on a map of a very large area. And the tracks are both exposed at the surface, but the important part about this study is that we didn't date the tracks at the surface. You can't date tracks that are exposed at the surface. You can't bracket tracks in time that way. You know, above tracks is just air. So we dug a trench. So there is a trench in the in the park uh, where we did this study, and we were able to expose multiple track horizons and date those horizons above and below. So that's interesting. So. So who first sort of discovered all these footprints? I guess I was thinking that there were 61 footprints that were found, but maybe those are <laughs> the ones that you're referring to in your those, study. Yeah. So the 61 prints were the ones that were thoroughly documented at this site in this study. But in reality, there's thousands of them. And David Bustos, who's the resource manager at White Sands National Park, and he's been there quite a long time. And he is the one who actually discovered the human footprints well over a decade ago, something like 15 years ago, right, Jeff? And he was, you know, determined to, um, to get the word out on this and to get experts in to, to verify what he really thought he was finding. And it took a little bit of time for him to convince a lot of people because people originally thought they were gr giant ground sloth tracks. But eventually he got these really well-known paleoecnologists, these track experts, 
in there and Matthew Bennett is the is the paleoecnologist on this team and when he realized what they were when David took him out there it was like you know game on this is really what you have here and the cool part is is that the humans are contemporaneous with the megafauna so that's a really important point too because the the ecnologists have done a lot of really cool studies that have to do with human megafaunal interaction that has never been documented anywhere in the world. So, you know, we we say that, you know, White Sands is literally singularly unique for this fact that you can document behavioral interactions between the humans and megafauna here. Um, and they're literally snapshots in time that you can tell a story. And you didn't want to use any surface footprints in your study. And I'm wondering also if there are other studies going on uh, regarding those, but how did you know like where the footprints were that were underneath uh, the surface that you, you dug a trench to find? So the site Lynn was uh, selected as a, a likely candidate because again, it's on the edge of the alkali flat. There is a very low relief kind of stratigraphy there, very low. They're flat lying practically, very low, but you can walk up the stratigraphy there. And Jeff and I were asked to be part of this team. I want to back up and tell you that we work in lots of national park units. We study past desert and spring uh, wetland ecosystems with the aim of understanding how past ecosystems responded to climate. So Jeff and I do really detailed stratigraphic and chronologic studies uh, and build frameworks that allow us to interpret climate climate response to abrupt uh, events in the geologic past, mostly the late Pleistocene, almost exclusively the late Pleistocene. So we have this sort of toolkit where we we can do this kind of work and see climate signals in rocks. And we work in lots of park units, so that we were asked by the National Park Unit to assist them in understanding how. Um, you know, when these tracks were formed, like really get at the context of the prints and, and you know, get a handle on how old they are because of these implications that if they were really old, it has really important implications about the peopling of the Americas. But previously to our involvement, Lynn, all the studies that had come out, there's scientific papers out there, fantastic ones that sort of reveal these beautiful snapshots in time of humans and giant ground sloth a woman holding a child, um, just amazing studies, but those are all from tracks exposed at the surface. And humans and megafauna are together in those studies and megafauna went extinct about, about 12,000 years ago. So basically all you can say is that they were hanging out together 12,000 years or, or when, question mark. So the idea is, is that to actually get a rigorous and methodological sort of handle on how old these things are, you have to reveal them in the third dimension. Because at the surface, you're only, if you were able to get a date, you'd only get something in underneath. That only gives you a maximum age. That doesn't help. You need to bracket the tracks in time, which is what we did in the original study with a trench. So finding these things in a trench was really what was necessary to be able to do that, to find datable material above and below a track horizon. And we actually did it at multiple track horizons, datable material above and below. So that's kind of the the way it went. You know, it's like there was 
knowledge, there were studies, but the big burning question was how old are these prints really? So that's kind of where Jeff and I came in. Yeah, and one of the one of the key things that, that needed to happen, so we, like Cass said, we had this this area on the east side of Alkali Flat that we had kind of targeted, and there were there were prints at the surface all over the place, right? But digging a trench there is is not easy. Uh, we don't use backhoes or any kind of equipment. We do everything by hand, so we basically use a giant chainsaw to cut sediments into blocks, and then we remove we remove them by hand, and it's this it's a pretty intensive process. So before we started, we we were going to do all the, all of that kind of work. Um, we needed to make sure that the footprints were actually present in the subsurface as well. And so uh, our colleague, Tommy, um, Tommy Urban at Cornell University, uh, he's a geophysical archaeologist, and he's at the vanguard of using a, a technique called ground penetrating radar, or GPR, uh, to look at footprints in the subsurface. And so he went uh, to this area that we had, we had picked out, um, waved his, his machine, you know, used his machine and, and collected all the data. Um, and then, then eventually told us that yes, there are in fact yeah. uh, human footprints in the subsurface. <clears throat> and then we were like, okay, now it's time to dig a trench because we know that the, these aren't just at the surface, but but they're down in the third dimension. Let's go take a look. That's amazing. So, how long is this trench that you dug? It is currently thirty-three meters long, and uh, about three meters deep. It's huge. <laughs> It's huge. <laughs> I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'll be back with research geologists Jeff Pagotti and Kathleen Springer after this short break. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. Treat your finances to a three-month certificate at Interior Federal Credit Union. This is a limited time opportunity to receive 5.22% annual percentage yield on a three-month certificate. Available beginning October 2nd, 2023 for new money only. Available for members of Interior FCU. Need to join? Apply at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. I'm Lynn Riddick, back now with research geologists Jeff Pagotti and Kathleen Springer from the U.S. Geological Survey. Tell me what else happened after you, you know, uncovered the footprints to your satisfaction. How did you go about testing this first round? Like what, what processes did you use to determine the age of them? Yeah. So, so we started the work in January of 2020 and uh, this is when we dug the, the trench initially, when we first did the trench, it was about 17 meters long and about a, maybe a meter and a half deep, something like that, about half of what it is currently. And 
when we did that, we exposed the sediments. Um, we found eight different track horizons um, in, the, in the, the third dimension. And we studied the stratigraphy, which is basically the, the layers of the sediments, really, really in fine detail. These are absolutely beautiful. Um, there's clays and silts and sands, and, and it's just kind of layer upon layer upon layer. And these footprints are imprinted on you know, several of these different layers. So like I said, the key thing that we needed to do after we described the trench really in detail, we get a handle on exactly where the, the, the footprint surfaces are because the footprint surfaces are exposed at the surface, right? They, the, the ecologists and the archeologists, they dig down and then they expose these big surfaces next to the trench. And then we trace each one of these surfaces into the trench in the third dimension. And then we find datable materials above and below. And that was really kind of uh, the, the thing that, that, that Kath and I really focused on was the stratigraphy, first of all, and then finding materials to date. And fortunately, we were able to find uh, seed layers. And they're, they're, it's really important that we found layers of seeds uh, rather than individual seeds, because individual seeds can move up and down through sediments over time. And so they might not, individual seeds might not necessarily be in place, right? They might have moved since the, the plants were alive. And we want to avoid that kind of thing for, for dating purposes. And then there's these things called seed balls that are that are pretty common in the in the Tularosa Basin. And basically they're plants that have been rolling around on the uh, on the surface for a while. They get they're kind of clumps of plants. They're really easy to identify. They're they're round balls of, of, of plants and seeds. We we avoid those for dating too because they're not in place, right? They've been rolling around for who knows how long. So we found these seeds that were in layers, and there's the seeds that we dated were still attached to really, really delicate stems of the plants. So we know that they haven't moved since the plants were alive. Basically, they just they've just been buried and have been sitting there the entire time, which is which is a great thing for dating. So how many seeds are we talking about per footprint? Yeah, so above and below where every every place that we collected samples um, that we collected uh, somewhere between 40 and 60 seeds. Um, they're really small. Uh, they're seeds from a, an aquatic plant. It's called Rupia serosa. It's a it's a common type of, of ditch grass. It grows in fairly shallow water. And the seeds are maybe a millimeter or two millimeters across in diameter. Like they're they're small. So you need a certain amount of mass of carbon for radiocarbon dating to be to be accurate. Um, and so we collected at each one of these layers, these seed layers above and below these trackways, we collected somewhere between 40 and 60 seeds that we use for the measurements. I wonder, maybe you know, um, do you think the seeds were stuck to the the bottom of the feet of the the folks that walked through there, or did they blow in after the prints were made? They're, so, since they're still attached to their stems, in a lot of cases, we know that they're 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 not being blown around. They're still in life position. But the cool thing is, in a lot of the cases that that where we sampled, people stepped right on the plants, and we actually took the the seeds right out of the footprints. So there's no question that people were walking around on this landscape, this kind of mosaic of wet and, and, and dry ground next to a lake. And they're just kind of walking around and step, stepping in puddles and stepping on dry land and sometimes mm -hmm. stepping right on plants, leaving their leaving their footprints and the seeds that are embedded in the footprints for, for us to study. So once you did your uh, radiocarbon testing uh, and then you were able sort of to determine that the footprints were as old as 23,000 years ago, what was... What was your initial reaction? Uh, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure what I can say on this program. <laughs> oh, oh no, here it comes! Like, oh boy! Oh my goodness! Yeah, it was it was it was shocking. It really was because you know the the the, the basic idea, you know, for most of the last century, 
the archaeologists thought that Clovis people were the first to arrive in the Americas, and that was about 13,000 years ago. And Clovis sites are all across North America. It's really, really well-known kind of cl uh, culture. It's really well-dated. And then there have been a few of these pre-Clovis sites, these older sites have kind of tried to push back the peopling of the Americas. And some of them are really solid. Some of them have, have stood the test of time. And, you know, they push back the, 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 the peopling of the Americas, at least when we started the study, there were sites that, that went back, 50, you know, 14 or 15,000 years ago, something like that. So when we got these ages back, 21 to 23,000, that's a huge jump, a huge jump in time. And so our, our first reaction was, oh my God, this is amazing. And then the second reaction was, oh my God, we better check everything in the lab and make sure that we didn't screw anything up. Cause, you know, <laughs> uh, and so we checked and double checked and triple checked and yes. lo and behold, uh, the, the, the ages, the ages hold up. We double checked and triple checked and redated yes. similar horizons. And we redated them farther in the exact same horizon down the trench laterally. We did a lot of, a lot of uh, checks and balances. Yep. I understand that reaction to your 2021 findings based on the seeds uh, weren't always positive. Um, so was there pushback and dissenting commentary from the scientific community? What was the feedback? Overwhelmingly, uh, the, the the response was positive. You don't hear a lot about that in the in the news and things because people were were, con were contacting us directly and saying, wow, this is this is amazing. We always we always had 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 a, had a feeling that there were people here quite a bit older, but nothing that was really right. solid enough to to kind of hang your hat on. And you guys nailed it. Like we heard from a lot of lot of people in in, in that that kind of vein. Um, but there were dissenters out there, absolutely. Um, and so there were a few different comments that were put in press, uh, in Science, and in other other articles that that questioned the the idea of the accuracy of the ages. Nobody questioned whether the the footprints were human. Nobody questioned whether the footprints were in the stratigraphy or that the datable materials were, you know, stratigraphically correct. It was always about the the, the pushback was always about the accuracy right. of the radiocarbon ages. And the, the the idea was the material that we dated were were aquatic seeds. Okay. So aquatic seeds can be can give ages that are too old because of a, a phenomenon. It's called the hard water effect. And basically the idea is groundwater moves through old rocks. Some of those rocks have carbon in them. So some of that old carbon gets in the water. And then if aquatic plants are living in that water, that, the, that old carbon can actually become entrained in the tissues like seeds and give ages that are too old, right? So we knew that, that this was gonna be an issue. Uh, we were really keenly aware of this when we began the work in January of 2020, when we were collecting these seeds. Um, and the idea was always to go back in April of 2020 to collect additional samples. Uh, we were going to, at that time, collect samples for pollen dating. And we we're also going to collect samples for luminescence dating. So that was the idea. Even way back then, we were going to go back in April of 2020 to collect those samples. Of course, COVID hits. We are on, uh, we're, everybody gets put in timeout uh, around the world for a little while. And so we weren't able to go back for a couple of years to do additional work. But all of the the original um, pushback of the for the 21 2021 paper were, were kind of centered around the seeds and and their accuracy. You know that that paper was published in Science and it went through rigorous review and we had not just the ages but a lot mm -hmm. of explanatory um, additional evidence where we basically said this site and those seeds have little to no hard water effect and these are the reasons why. So the paper is not just the ages but it also has. Mm -hmm you know, the, the, the evidence of 
you know, that we really feel strongly that this depositional environment, the specific hydrology of where these tracks were found has little to no hard water effect. So we were confident in the original ages, Lynn. So that's what we're trying to say. The original paper was published with our full confidence, but we knew that be at the very beginning that we were already going to do other multiple independent chronologic techniques to create more community confidence, especially in the archaeologic community, you know, just a, a wider confidence, um, even though we knew the original ages were robust. Um, that's why the, that's how kind of the second paper came out. So it's it's kind of two chapters of the same story, if you will. Sure. Yeah. Um, your follow up work, which just I guess was just released a couple of days ago. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you talked about the different testing that you did with the pollen and the luminescence. So explain those methods a little further. Sure. So so basically, we went back and collected samples from the exact same stratigraphic levels as the original seed samples, and uh, those those samples we collected for pollen dating. Okay, radiocarbon dating of pollen. And we, we focused on conifer pollen. And the reason that we did that, it's mostly pine, but the reason we did that is that conifer trees grow on land. And so they don't have any of these issues, the hard water effects, they don't have any of these old carbon issues. Um, they get all of their carbon from the, directly from the atmosphere through photosynthesis, which is ideal, ideal for dating. The difficulty with dating pollen is that pollen is really tiny. And it's really hard to date. And people have been trying to do this for decades with really mixed, mixed success because it's almost impossible, or it was up until just recently, to get enough pure pollen for a radiocarbon age without having other kinds of organic material kind of mixed in, right? And so there was a whole process there. The, 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 the process that we developed and that we used in this study took place in four different labs across the country. It took about a year. But the key thing is that we used a, a technique called flow cytometry. And this is a really cool technique. It was developed in the medical field to separate uh, some types of cells from other types of cells based on different properties, right? And so uh, what people have developed in, in our world, in the geology world, is that you can separate uh, pollen grains from not pollen based on the fluorescence properties of pollen grains. So you, you take the sample and after you, after you melt away the rocks and you clean it up and you sieve it and you do all these things to it, to get the pure pollen in the end, which is what we really needed, we run the samples through this flow cytometer over and over and over again for hours. And we end up with about 75,000 grains of pure pollen for each sample that we that we dated. And there's nothing else in there. It's a it's, The separation is really, really fantastic. So we're just dating the pollen. Okay, that's one technique that we used. The second, it's called luminescence dating. And specifically, it's called optically stimulated luminescence. It's a, it's a special type. But basically what that does is it dates the last time quartz grains were exposed to sunlight or heat. So in our case, basically we have we have some quartz grains kind of blowing around in the, you know, in the air as, as dust. It, it, the, the quartz grains uh, get exposed to sunlight, kind of resets the clock. Those grains are deposited and buried then the then the clock starts and so we measure the luminescence properties basically the amount of energy that's trapped in the, the quartz grains uh to to uh, determine the last time basically the last time these grains were deposited and so we have very different techniques you know radiocarbon dating of seeds radiocarbon dating of pollen and luminescence dating of quartz grains and all three techniques converged on the same age range between 23 and 21,000 years so 
that's that was that's the, the kind of the take home message, the big picture, the big result of, of our of our latest study. Yeah, I'm trying to get a picture of um, what conditions were like when these footprints were made. It's a couple of things. So uh, is it and it's really a cool story because, again, we work in the USGS climate program and we are always looking for a climate signal in the sediments because we find them. All over the American Southwest, there are specific periods of time where there are abrupt warming events during the late Pleistocene. They're called Dansgaard Oeschger events or DO events. And we see the ecosystems that we said, study suffer and they, they during these multi-century mega droughts of DO events. Now, these are happening during the Ice Age, but they are these blips of warm that cause stress to ecosystems. So at White Sands, big lake, Lake Otero. And in this trench, you can see the lake. You know, it's a full-on lake. Our lowest track horizons are dated at about 23,000 years in the package of sediments that have the tracks in them. So it goes from the lake sediments, boom, abruptly to these very thin layers of clay that have the seeds in them, and then a layer of gypsum, and then laminated silts and clays and gypsum and clays and silt, and track, 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 track. That's the track package that starts at about 23 in our study. But at 23.3 thousand years ago, there was an abrupt warming event called DO event two. And that is where you see the lake go away. It And, and our hypothesis is the lake receded and never ever to return. The, the lake never reached a height again of where this section is. All subsequent sedimentation is this mosaic of, like you said, uh, at a lake edge, there was some wet and then there was these, you know, the ditch grass growing in, you know, puddles or little shallow things. And then there was sand. So on a lake edge, there's there's mud and there's sand, and it was a mosaic environment that was at this. The lake was still there to the west, but this was this big wide margin on the lake edge that was now available for people to sort of come up to this water edge for whatever resources they were interested in. But we've documented that sedimentary package with tracks in it for 2000 years. So the climate was still the last glacial maximum. The pollen indicates that there were firs, pines, spruce. That forest ecosystem was probably suppressed way down the mountain front. And then on the Piedmont or the, the alluvial fans, it was probably a sage step, sort of a stage, a, excuse me, a sage, you know, sort of a whole, like there's not sage there today. The pollen, the modern, that we also sampled as a test is a Chihuahuan desert scrub. It's that's what the modern. So it's really neat that the the last glacial maximum signature of the flora is also an additional line of evidence for us in this study. So what's been the reaction to the new findings this week? Oh, again, overwhelmingly positive. Like really overwhelmingly mm -hmm. positive. But there there is you know. Um, you know, as as we've said, the the original paper got pushed back. The original paper had commentary in the literature. Some of that commentary, actually most of it, said, you know, this is great and it could be, but you need to do pollen and you need to do luminescence dating. And we're like, okay, we were already in the middle of doing that when these commentaries were written. So we have that and we've done that. And now 
the pushback is, um, and you can fly in anytime, Jeff, the pushback mm -hmm. is, well, the pollen is X, Y, and Z, or the luminescence dating is X, Y, and Z, like as if, you know, they're not quite right. And so the, the commentary now is like, well, you did that, but it's not, you know, still not, not good. Yeah. Be, you know? <laughs> yeah. The thing, Lynn, about, about dating is that any kind of data we've in the history of science, we've never measured the age of anything ever. You can't measure an age. You measure something that is time dependent and you calculate an age. And th those calculations have inherent assumptions. They also have inherent limitations, right? Like every single dating technique out there is, is based on something that we physically measure. Mm -hmm. And so people can attack a single dating technique or the, the results of, of a single dating technique um, pretty easily. And that, and people do that all the time. There's, there's, you know, you question and you ask and you, and you try to figure out if these are right or not. The thing is we have three different dating techniques mm -hmm. all converging in the same, same time range. We also have five or six other lines of evidence that all line up in terms of the climate, the hydrology, the geology, the pollen itself, the, the ages themselves. There's all kinds of other secondary lines of evidence that also point to the same, the, to the same time period. And so, you know, in our view, it gets it gets harder and harder and it and really becomes impossible to make a coherent argument why all of these different techniques are all wrong, even though they converge on a single age, but they're still wrong. And, you and know, require that's, an improbable series of events to make that part of their um, criticism correct. Yeah. Even though all the rest so, of them all still converge. So, um, and it's a yeah, small we, vocal group, but, you know, you're not going to please everybody all the time. Yeah. And we're, you know, we continue to work out there. This study is not over. Again, this is just the latest chapter in this much larger White Sands uh, footprint story. So um, the more you know, yeah. the more you know, and there'll be lots more data coming out from different parts of this park. And, you know, who knows where else? Yeah, but in, but in terms of the, the accuracy of the ages that we put out in 2021, the, the, the results of this, this, this latest study really, really closed the case on whether we should be continuing to argue about them. It's, it's time to, time to move on and, and learn other things because you can't have all of these, these different techniques converge and still be wrong. It just, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. It kind of um, is similar and parallel to uh, something I read about. It happened in a lake bed in Australia, 1968. And maybe you know about this, um, but a geologist there found human bones and at that time, it was believed that humans had been in Australia only 8,000 years. Um, but then this new carbon dating showed the bones to be 23,000 years old. And then other recovered bones were found to be, you know, as old as 60,000 years. So it's kind of a shift in the conventional oh, yeah. wisdom. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely a paradigm shift in those all ways take quite a while to sort of um you know become in the parlance in the you know just sort of the conventional thought um you know play tectonics is an is like a really big example of that lots mm -hmm. of people when play tectonics was you know put out there and proved there were loads of people that were holdouts for a very long time sure well, okay, so now um, how do those footprints um, differ from other types of early homo forms and how do they differ from our footprint today? 
Well, I mean, all I can tell you is that the paleoecnologists have identified these as absolutely humans and homo sapien humans. And the, the, the statistical analyses that they've done are comparing these 61 footprints and all of the measurements taken therein to modern unshod people in Africa and to modern people who routinely wear shoes. So there's big data sets of showing what people's feet look like um, that never have worn shoes, that always wear shoes, and then the White Sands one. And they're put in this sort of multivariate statistical space and all those fields converge. So they're human and they're human people like us today. So um, that's really cool because that that's the kind of rigorous um, quantitative analysis. I mean, qualitatively, you look at these images and go, yeah. They look like my foot, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and, and, and also the, 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 the cool part is, is that the demographics of this one site of the ones that were analyzed are, are kids, they're, they're kids between nine and 14. And so the preponderance of the prints here are teenagers and, and kids. So that's really an interesting thing. And then that's, that leads to the hypothesis that what would, why, and that the older people were doing the hard labor and that the teenagers were fetchers and carriers of lighter stuff and that the kids, little kids just follow the teenagers around like little, you know, like they do. And so they leave more of, they leave more prints, the preponderance of prints are the younger people just kind of cruising around all the time, you know, just sort of doing what they do. There are adult prints, I should point out, and there are adult mm -hmm. prints in some of the other published studies, but at this particular site, it's uh, children. Oh, mostly. children. Yeah, yeah I, I did want to ask you about that, and you mentioned sloths, and I was curious to know if uh, what other fossils or uh, footprints or tracks from other you know animals have been found there, if any. Yeah, so um, David Bustos, again, is the Zen master of the tracks, as well as Matthew Bennett, who's the ethnologist in the UK. But Matthew, uh, David is the one who's been working there, documenting these things for you know a couple decades now. So there are mammoth prints, so many, you would be shocked. You can actually see mammoth tracks and track ways on Google Earth, believe it or not. If you know what you're looking at, you can see, you can see mammoth. There are giant ground sloth, of course. There are camel. There are bison. There are dire wolf. There are saber-toothed cat. Um, there's um, equids that have been found. So, um, and um, we have been out there the last couple of years and um, some bear have been uncovered. And that's really cool to see. Uh, we found a site mm -hmm. with little baby bears and the mama bear right next to it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so what they know is based on, again, these sort of snapshots or these sort of timestamp stories that they have published of one is a human group that is, you know, um, walking up to a giant ground sloth. And in this scene, the people are walking up to the sloth, the sloth rears up on its hind end and, you know, clearly annoyed that people are bugging him. And the people continue to come around in the scene and, and then the sloth, you know, a little farther away gets back down on four legs and and boogies on you know and the, and so that hypothesis is people were harassing this sloth in the attempt to either you know they were stalking it or you know maybe he was a prey item so that's a snapshot of like behavior between 
you know, people and animals that never, ever could be achieved ever using fossil bone. Or even, even if we found artifacts during this period of time, you couldn't make inferences like that. So that's why White Sands National Park is singularly unique worldwide, because these kinds of, you know, inferences of behavior can be gleaned from these track studies. Yeah, and I just want to say that um, the photos of the footprints that I saw online and in your report are just amazingly well-preserved. It's the most remarkable thing. We've actually seen like little, tiny, like like toddler-sized mm -hmm. people too, just yeah. like you would imagine, just like today, what a little kid's foot looks like. Um, and that's amazing to be able to see a, a tiny person walking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty cool. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'll be back with research geologists Jeff Pagotti and Kathleen Springer after this short break. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. I'm Lynn Riddick, back now with research geologists Jeff Pagotti and Kathleen Springer from the U.S. Geological Survey. Well, so um, how do ancient footprints um, compare with, say, bones or fossils or artifacts in determining the age, roughly, of human presence? And is it better to find a footprint than a skull or, you know, is it all good? It's all about being able to put that object into the stratigraphy. So there's lots of sites out there in the world. Some are contested. Some are, you know, have been given the seal of approval by the archaeologic world. Ones that are older than the, you know, classic Clovis age. And and the ones that haven't been given that seal of approval, and Jeff can weigh in, that the dating is either not up to snuff, the stratigraphy is really messed up, or... The, you know, the artifacts or the human culture artifacts that are said to be associated are not in association with what you're trying to, the story you're trying to tell. So you can have an artifact, but it has to be in an association that you can date definitively. It can't just be sitting at the surface because who knows when that was deposited there. Um, bones, the same thing. Bones have to be in a framework. And that is you know, goes back to what Jeff and I do everywhere we do it. We work in these stratigraphic sequences. They all happen to have vertebrate fossils spilling out of them. And we are able to finally bracket in time when those animals were cruising around the landscape. Like for instance, at Tule Springs Fossil Beds National Monument, there's a hundred thousand years 
of vertebrate faunas, and they are in 13 separate units that can be bracketed in time. That is really powerful to be able to like ask questions about a vertebrate fauna through time, or, you know, has there, is there any final dynamics happening or did other, did the camels go away at a certain time? When did the mammoths, I mean, you know, so there's vertebrate paleontologists can use those kinds of frameworks very, very well, but it, even in the world of archeology, span it's the same concept. You have to have the, 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 the object or whatever you're looking at to say, this is humans that were here then you have to be able to to be able to date it definitively. Do you have anything to add there, Jeff? Yeah, yeah. So one of the really neat things about these 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 last couple of studies, and that and the, the other ones that were that Kath were, was was talking about is that footprints and the finding the footprints. It's a it's a new line of of uh, of evidence of archaeological data that has really not been used before. Right, traditional archaeological work is done. Using artifacts and using, you know, worked bones or some some other some other evidence that humans were there, but we have their actual footprints. We're we're kind of skipping the the middle step and going straight to these were humans on the landscape based on their footprints alone. And the the really amazing thing about this is that the Tularosa Basin in southern New Mexico is fabulous. It's it's wide, it's big, it's beautiful, and it had a had a had an ice age lake, you know, in it for these people to kind of walk next to and what have you. There were Ice Age lakes all over the Western U.S. Hundreds and hundreds of basins had these same lake, these pluvial lakes, these Ice Age lakes in them. And so there's an, a huge untapped resource that, that we think is going to, to start getting more, more attention. And that is footprints in lake basins uh, that, are, that are similar to Tularosa Basin, right? To, to, to the White Sand mm -hmm. story. There's a, there's literally a countless number of of, uh, of areas that, that can be studied that people just haven't looked at previously. So it's it's really kind of a, a revolution in terms of, of how to approach archaeological uh, science. You're going to make everybody want to go out and start looking for footprints. Well, good. <laughs> That's the plan. That's the plan. Exactly. Well, let me ask about this trench, this 30 meter trench of footprints that you've uncovered. How are they protected? Is there any thought on uh, covering them with some sort of structure like they have at uh, Waco Mammoth uh, National mm -hmm. Monument? Yeah. Well, you know what covers them in about three days? White sand. Mm -hmm. The trench fills with white sand extraordinarily quickly. And every time we would like to go back or any, you know, the archaeologists want to go back and look at this thing, all we have to do is dig out loose sand. I mean, that takes some time, but it can be done. Um, so the trench is still there, but it's filled with sand at the moment and um, and probably will be forevermore. That's really how they are protected in C2. So one of the things that's really important to note is that White Sands National Park is very keen on documenting these resources to protect them, you know, or even to try. I don't know if there's techniques to mitigate the erosion of these things, but the the same sort of wind that that basically exposes these things at the surface is the same wind that makes them go away in a couple seasons. So um, David and his team, they are doing really um, GIS-based documentation of this stuff. They're doing unbelievable photogrammetry of all these tracks. They're creating 3D prints based on that. They're doing LIDAR. Um, the USGS drone folks are out there 
flying their drones and taking imagery of these tracks. Um, and then you can get snapshots in time of the rate of erosion so that they at least have some information about how long these things stick around. So the park is really interested in, in doing that because it's you can't collect them, Lynn. It's, it's like impossible. <laughs> I mean, I worked in a museum for a zillion years and, it, and there's, and they've brought preparators out from the National Park Service to sort of brainstorm, how could these be, you know, even just a slab of them collected and put in a museum? I mean, maybe they could impregnate them with epoxy or something and then pull a chunk out. I don't know. I mean, there's people that have been brainstorming on, you know, getting an actual block of them. And, uh, but you know, the gypsum is just, it's just really destructive. It just mm -hmm. eats everything. That's why there's no bone. There's no bone at White Sands. The, the gypsum just eats bone. So it's a, it's a fossil record with footprints. There is anecdotal and historic, a couple fossil sites in a couple places, but it's super rare, super, super rare. So at the park, um, how are these dig sites, if you will, protected from the public? Or maybe they're not. Maybe, uh, you know, like you say, the trench is filled uh, with gypsum and nobody's the wiser. Well, interestingly, White Sands National Park, the public areas are the sand dunes. The alkali flat is 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 off limits to the public. So a huge chunk of real estate of White Sands is actually not available to the public because it was part of the White Sands bombing range back in the day. And there's still a co-use area with the, the Wismer, the White Sands missile range that surrounds this national park. And, um, you know, they don't want people out there if there's a potentially unexploded ordinance or or the like. So it's basically an off-limits area. But, you know, the, the area that, that, that encompasses the, the dunes is, well, enormous. So that's kind of why people go there to, to hang out and play on the dunes. But yeah, so that, that is a thing. So who knows, maybe someday when that there'll be maybe a lead field trip, who knows how, you know, how people, how interpretive, you know, sort of venues sort of come about eventually they'll definitely have stuff they have new exhibits planned and in the works at the museum for sure so visitors can see what these things are what the animals were they have really cool um, information on their website on their website they have video that people can view and download of us working out in the field and also that's available to the media the media pulls video off there so that they can um, you know put it on their programs or whatever it's a fairly restricted area in general. Well, you touched a little bit on um, some of the subsequent research you'd like to do. Tell me a little bit more about that. Do you want to tell? Yeah, go for it. Go for <laughs> it. <laughs> so, you know, so so this this site for these two papers is called Locality 2. And, and that is, um, is still in the works. There is still more information that's going to come from there. The trench is deeper and it's longer. And um, there's more paleo environmental information that will come from that. We have partnered with other folks, other scientists that are bringing different pieces to this story. Um, and so that will that will be another chapter of this locality too. We've gone to the complete other side of the of the basin, and there's a whole just set of beautiful bluffs along the the, the western side there. And back in the day, that was a wetland. 
And it's so it's a very different depositional environment than the east side. It's actually a, a wetland that's overtopping this lake. And there's outcrop, which Jeff and I are like, yay, outcrop. <laughs> and there's wetlands. Jeff and I are, yay, wetlands. So it's basically a gypsiferous marsh sequence. And there's, um, so we're starting to um, reveal that sequence. And, um, you know, our attempt is to understand, again, the stratigraphy, the paleo environment, and the paleo climate signals, and, and integrate this whole story basin-wide within the context of the humans and the megafauna and where they are in this sequence in time. So like who was hanging out on the east side during this time and you know were the people on the west if there are people when were they hanging out and and all of that. So we're just trying to do a big basin wide integration and tell a, a much bigger story at White Sands. Yeah, I would think that you have um ignited a lot of extra attention with this. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. That's a very good way to put it. Yes. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. Yeah. Well, what are your roles in the research? How do you guys divvy up the work and, and who else has been involved um, in, in these studies? Well, Jeff and I do everything together. Um, you know, is it, I mean, is it all right, Jeff? You go, yeah, go for it. Go. Yeah. You know, Jeff is, Jeff runs the Jeff is a geochronologist and runs the USGS radiocarbon laboratory and has a deep, deep history doing all different kinds of you know geochronology stuff. And I am the sort of the eyes and the the reader of the rocks. I do the stratigraphy and make sure all of this, the sedimentology and and it, it, they all have to be done together. We are working together talking about what we're doing, where we're doing it, and 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 making the connections. Um also, so, you know, I am doing the stratigraphy mostly and making mm -hmm. connections with what we need to do. And like, I don't really like the way we're digging there. You guys need to dig over there because I can't see what we need to see here. You got to, we got to do it over there or, <laughs> or whatever. But um, so the details of, you know, where these things are and what they mean, um, you know, we, we, uh, I do that. I'm kind of primarily responsible for that, but we, definitely do everything together. We're really bringing all of this experience and being able to sort of see stratigraphic sequences and put them together in these really detailed frameworks. And 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 the fact that we've seen so many different stratigraphic sequences all over the American Southwest, we can actually, um, I could give you multiple examples, instantly tell you what exactly we are looking at in a brand new place, you know, like mm -hmm. I know exactly what that is and what that means in a, and especially in a climate sense, we're really trying to really see how ecosystems responded in a really large scale regional way. And uh, so we are the team that, you know, got brought in to do this part. There's mm -hmm. paleoignologist, Matthew Bennett is the team leader. He's in the UK and in, in Bournemouth University, David Bustos, kind of assembled all these people. Vince Santusi is the senior paleontologist in the National Park Service in Washington. He is the mover and shaker and made all of it happen, you know, bringing all these, you know, bringing us in for sure, asking us to, to do this for the park. Um, Dan Odess is a retired archaeologist in the Washington office. Uh, and then Tommy Urban is doing this vanguard work in ground penetrating radar, radar and magnetometry um, and using these geophysical methods to really be able to see this stuff in the subsurface. I mean, what a powerful tool. Mm -hmm. 
And um, so there's like a core team of people that really have a unique skill set in total that, you know, could be translated anywhere we wanted to go and examine um, these types of, of yeah. systems. And, and for this for this latest study, uh, we really lean on uh, one of our colleagues, Jeff Honke, who's uh, a geologist and a, right. and, and, a, and a lab, basically a lab uh, magician to do, the, he, he works in the, the USGS Radiocarbon Lab. Um, we had Dave Wall and Marie Champagne, uh, who are with the USGS uh, out in Menlo Park um, that, that helped us along the way. Um, Susan Zimmerman was at Lawrence Livermore. So it's a, it's a, it's a really big cast of characters to, to, that, that all of these different lines of expertise need to be kind of brought together to, to, to really tell the full story. So Kathleen, you are in Southern California and Jeff, you're in Colorado. So how many times would you say you've been out to the site? Um, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine or ten, something nine, like that. Nine or yeah. ten times. We go basically three times a year um, for for about a week at a time, uh, with the exception of of COVID. We couldn't get out there for for quite a while. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's a uh, every time that we go out there, it's amazing because you never know what you're going to discover next, and it is every time. It is, it is literally every single day we are. You know, kind of the kids in the candy store. We get to we get to 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 figure these these stories out in in an absolutely amazingly beautiful park, and with with all of the people that we work with, it's a it's a it's a spectacular uh, experience. Well, um, Kathleen and Jeff, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. This is fascinating, and uh, we hope that you'll continue to share your work and your research with us. Oh, definitely, definitely. absolutely, oh, absolutely, you, yes. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be discussing news from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that 21 species have gone extinct. Will that hasten protection for species in danger of becoming extinct? It'll be an informative conversation, and we hope you'll tune in. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. Composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.